0: CR101radio.com Podcasts and more. Continuing the series in First John. And our scripture reading this evening is First John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. First John 2, 3 through 6. This is God's word. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the clarity of it, for this test to see whether or not we really do know you. Um, for, for us who do know you, I pray that you will give us assurance of that. And if there are any here who do not know you, I pray that you will draw them to yourself so that they truly may be in Christ, that they may truly be saved and truly know you. We pray that you'll bring this passage to bear on all of us. It'll convict us and help us and build us up. That you'll be praised by us this evening. We pray that you'll help me to to preach it well, to preach it clearly, and um, we just pray that it'll that this act of worship in your word will be pleasing to you. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Let the record show. I took all the blows and did it my way. Some of you might recognize those words from the song that was made famous by Old Blue Eyes, Frank Sinatra, his song called My Way. Although Sinatra himself called the song Self-Serving and Self-Indulgent, which of course it is. The song is about a man who's looking back on his life. He's near the end of his life. He's looking back on it and explaining that his life was fulfilling because he did everything his way. Ultimately, the greatest fulfillment in his life, no matter what he did, was that I did it my way, as it goes. Some of the lyrics go like this, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much, much more. I did it. I did it my way. The song became a sort of a national anthem for the American spirits. Um, NPR said about the song, My way represents the quintessentially American outlook that nothing in life matters more than living on your own terms. In fact, this was the song that uh, Donald Trump first danced to as president in the, at his inauguration. But as a, it's not just Americans who resonate with the message of the song. The BBC reports this to be one of the most requested songs played at funeral homes in the UK. So as American or British or global as my way may be, the attitude reflected in the song is one that is flatly unchristian. In fact, the Apostle John essentially gives this as the test to see whether or not you're saved in this text this evening, to whether or not you're really Christians. Will you follow your way or Jesus' way? That's how we can really know if we're saved. Yet, there seem to be very few professing Christians in our day who even think to ask the question, how do I know that I know him? Or how do I know that I'm saved? Because for many, it's, if I think I'm saved, I am saved. Or I say I'm a Christian, so I am one. But one of the main purposes of 1 John, as we've seen, is in later on in the book, 1 John 5, 13. He says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And the text we have this evening deals with that, that very issue. Now, John has already given us a few tests to see whether or, no we have, whether or not we know we have eternal life. He gave us in chapter 1 the walking in the light or walking in the darkness test. If you walk in the light, he says that's evidence you're saved. If you walk in darkness, that's evidence you're not saved. He gave us the confession test. If you confess your sins, that's evidence that you're saved. But if you deny that you're a sinner, that's evidence that you're not saved. And then here in chapter 2, we have another test called the obedience test. Do you keep the commandments of God? That's evidence that you're saved. If you don't, that's evidence that you're not saved. Let's go ahead and look into the text. Look at verse 3. 1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So it's kind of an implied question here. It's how do we know that we have come to know him? And then verse 3 answers it. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So first of all, what does it mean to know God? Well, it's the same thing as what John had said earlier. It means to have fellowship with God. In 1 John 1, 1.6, he says, if we say we have fellowship. And fellowship means this intimate relationship with God. Either you have fellowship or you don't, right, with God. So knowing God means having fellowship with him. In other words, knowing God means that you're saved. Okay, so knowing Christ, knowing God means that you're saved. In fact, Jesus put it that way in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 3. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. That they may know the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is this, knowing the Father and knowing the Son. That's what Jesus himself said. Jesus also said that not knowing him, shows it means that you're not saved. In Matthew seven twenty three, he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And there he is, casting people away into hell. So, knowing God means you're saved, and not knowing him means you're not saved. So, the question here is how do we know that we know him, or how do we know that we're saved, in other words? Now, before we look at the particulars of the test of how we know that we know him, I have to get, make something really clear here. We're not saved by keeping the commandments, we're not saved by works. And it would be a great perversion of this text if you interpreted it that way. See, John has already touched upon in the letter how someone is made right with God. It's not by keeping the commandments or for advocating for ourselves. First John 1.7, he says, The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's how we're saved, by Jesus' sacrifice. First John 1.9 says, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then First John two one and two is we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's how we're saved. Jesus took the punishment on the cross for our sins. His blood cleanses us from all sins. He's made that clear. In fact, his, the most famous verse in John's Gospel teaches that it's not by works, doesn't it? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's by belief. And the Son, not by keeping the commandments. And all of that, of course, that John teaches is consistent with what the rest of the Bible teaches. For example, in Galatians 2:16, one of my favorites, because it has it so clearly, three times in one verse that we are not saved by works but by faith in Christ, he says this, Paul says in Galatians 2:16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. can't get clearer than that. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And all of that being laid out, all of that being clear that we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not by commandment keeping, we have to understand this. I need you to pay very close attention to this. This point in the sermon, if you have no good works, you should not expect to go to heaven. Now, let me be clear, that's not because your works are in any way the cause of getting into heaven. It's because your good works are proof that you have legitimate faith. So in other words, we're saved by faith alone, but true faith is never alone in the person who is saved. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this in 11.2 It says, Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. And it's that last part in particular that we're focusing on. It's no dead faith. But worketh by love. So we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not by a mere profession of faith in Christ alone. We actually have to possess genuine faith in order to be saved. We're saved by placing our trust in Christ, not by simply saying that we've placed our trust in Christ. And we possess when we possess this true faith, it's always, always followed by good works in the person who has that true faith. So if you profess to have faith, but do not have good works, you should not expect to go to heaven because you don't have legitimate faith. Because legitimate faith is proven by good works. So we're justified by faith alone, but you cannot be sure that you have justifying faith unless it's proven to be real by good works. So saying you have faith doesn't mean you have faith, in other words. Let's look at James's illustration of this. I think it's really helpful and impactful. Look at James chapter two real quick. Just to keep your place in First John. But James 2:14 to 17. I want you to see this. His illustration here is helpful to demonstrate what genuine faith uh, looks like. James 2:14 to 17. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Here's the illustration. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So saying you have faith in Christ and not having works is about as convincing as this. Here's the illustration. Somebody in the church comes to your door. And they say, hey, I've lost everything. I have no money. I have no food. I have no shelter. I don't have clothing. I can't survive. Will you please help me? And you say, oh no, I'm so concerned for you. I, I want you to have sufficient food. I want you to have shelter. Wow, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And then you slam the door in their face. You say, oh, do you really care about whether they have shelter and food when you did nothing? You, you claimed to care, but then you slam the door in their face. He's saying, that's about as convincing as saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, he's my Lord and Savior, but then there's no good works that follow from it. You wouldn't believe somebody who said they cared about the, uh, the food and, and clothing necessary for the body if they didn't do anything about it. And likewise, somebody who says Jesus is my Lord but has no good works, it's shown to be a fake claim. It's a phony claim. Take, for example, as well, the Israelites who came out of Egypt led by Moses. That's a generation that did not enter into the promised land, right? They died in the wilderness. And the book of Hebrews tells us why that happened to them. In Hebrews 3, uh, starting in verse 16 and going into chapter 4, verse 2, it says this, For who provoked him, who provoked God when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was God angry? Was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Now hear this. So we see that they were not able to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith with those who heard. So here's what's going on here. The description of the Israelites who died in the wilderness, who didn't enter the promised land, is that they were those who sinned, those who were disobedient, they rebelled. But you notice in verse 19, the reason they didn't enter the promised land is given. They were not able to enter because of unbelief. See, the way into the promised land was by faith, by faith alone. Just like our entrance into the heavenly promised land is by faith, by faith alone. Yet how was their unbelief demonstrated? By their rebellion, by their sin, by their disobedience. And ultimately, and most clearly, when they wanted to kill Moses and turn back and go back to Egypt and appoint a new leader, rejecting God's plan for them entirely, turning back. Their disobedience, their unrepentant sin demonstrated their unbelief. It was their unbelief, His unbelief was the reason why they could not enter into the promised land. And the same is true. The point that Hebrews is making is, for us who have also heard the gospel, if we don't believe it, we're not going to enter into the promised land of heaven. And our unbelief will be shown by rebellion. So if we claim to be a Christian, a believer, yet live in unrepentant sin, as our lifestyle, we shouldn't expect to enter the promised land of heaven. Because that rebellion is evidence that we haven't really believed the gospel. So I'm saying, it's not that obeying God is the way to heaven, it isn't. But obeying God is proof that you believe the gospel. And Jesus is the way to heaven, faith in him is the way to heaven, but good works will, will show whether you actually believe it or not. So unrepentant disobedience is proof that you have no legitimate faith, and a lifestyle of striving to obey God's commands is evidence that you do actually believe the gospel. So there's no such thing as a person who is saved but doesn't obey God's commands. And that's, the, that's what this text is saying here, 1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. What we're really talking about here is the results of being born again, the results of being regenerated. When God saves a person, he makes them born again, and the results of that are evident. Ezekiel 36 spells it out for us pretty clearly. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's being born again. That's regeneration. He'll take out your heart of stone and give you a new heart. He says in verse 27, here's the key part here. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my commandments and be careful to observe my ordinances. See, when God gives you a new heart, he will cause you to obey him. That's just what he does. That's how it works. So the reason that John here can give obedience to God's commands as an evidence of being saved is because... That's what God does when he saves somebody. He gives them a new heart and they will obey his commandments. He always causes them to do so, period. That's how he operates without exception. Those who are saved will keep God's commandments. And that's what John is saying. We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, there are some out there who promote, and we just have to say, the heresy that somebody can be truly saved and not have a changed life as a result. And that couldn't be further from the truth of a biblical teaching here. They, they teach that you can have Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. That you can have faith, but no repentance. That you can be a Christian, yet be carnal. That is, live an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle, but yet still be saved. John flat out rejects all those notions here in 1 John. You can't have a subscription plan to Jesus as Savior, and then have the option to have him as Lord later on a package deal. Either you have Jesus as Savior and Lord, or you don't have him at all. Either you will truly trust in Jesus, and you will truly repent of your sins, or you won't have him at all. If you are justified, then you're already born again. They go together in the person that God saves. There's not a single person in the history of the world who has been saved without being changed by God. That's just what he does. He changes people. Look at verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. There's an illustration that uh, Paul Washer gave many years ago that I will share with you now. Let's say that I was late in showing up to preach this evening, like really late that you all were wondering, hey, where is this guy, right? Where is he? you all wondering where I am. And I finally show up and you say, man, where were you? Why were you so late? And I say, I know I'm late, but I have a great excuse. Here's what happened. I was driving here, and I got a flat tire, right? So I had to pull off on the side of the highway. I was changing the tire. And one of the, the bolts rolled off into the highway. So I'm thinking, oh, so without, without thinking, I go into the middle of the highway to pick up the bolt. I look up, and there's an 80,000-pound logging truck barreling down the highway right at me. And then it hit me. Like that. Boom. And that's why I'm late. <laughs> you'd say, okay, there's really only two options here, man. Either one, you're, you've lost your marbles. You're totally insane. You're out of your mind. Or secondly, and more likely, you'd say, you're the biggest liar I've ever seen. You're lying your face off right now. Because how could somebody meet a power that great and walk away unchanged? Right. So how is it that somebody can claim to know God, to meet him, a power that's incomparable and walk away unchanged? John says such a person who claims that is a liar and the truth is not in him. He said the same type of thing in, in 1 John 1.6. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We are liars if we claim to know God and yet do not keep his commandments if we live a lifestyle of disobedience. Our whole profession of faith is a lie. It's like saying we, we care about our starving brother and then not giving him a crumb to eat. Your actions show your claim is phony. Moreover, John says that for such people, the truth is not in them. They're a liar and also the truth is not in them. That is the truth of the gospel, they don't believe it. Truth is not in them. They don't believe it. Their claim to believe it is baloney. They have not received God's word by faith. And that's obvious for this reason. Everyone who truly puts their faith in Christ is born again and will walk in the commandments of God. That's how God operates when he saves. He will always bear fruit in his people. So if somebody knows him, they will bear that fruit. If they claim to know him but don't bear the fruit, John says they're a liar. They're a liar. Look at verse five. Whoever keeps his word, in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Let's stop there. This phrase, in him, the love of God has truly been perfected, should be understood like this. With regard to the person who, who obeys the commandments of God, his love for God has been perfected or completed or accomplished in him. In other words, he doesn't mean that a person is obeying God or loving God perfectly. He's already dealt with that error that people say they're sinless. What he's saying is we can know that somebody truly loves God by whether or not they keep his commandments. The love of God has been accomplished in a person if they actually keep his commandments. People can claim to love God, but that's only shown to be true or accomplished in a person if they actually obey him. So claiming to love God does not mean that you do. Right. True love for God can only be considered accomplished in a person who keeps his commandments and really in no other way. And that's really what Jesus said, isn't it? John 14, 15. If you love me, what you will keep my commandments. Right. It's the same idea. Essentially, love for God is shown by keeping his commandments. That's how we prove that we truly do love God. It's not, though, if you love me, you'll talk about my commandments. Or, if you love me, you'll study my commandments. Or, you'll say my commandments are a good standard of morality. Or, if you love me, you'll say that my commandments are the only standard of morality. Now, a true Christian who loves God will say those things, of course, but the standard is this, where well, you keep his commandments. That demonstrates whether you love God or not. The test is a changed life, a life that desires to actually keep the commandments of God. So, such a person truly loved God if he keeps his commandments. That's the test. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Now, look at the latter half of verse 5 and verse 6. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The point here is, is pretty straightforward. The one who is truly saved will act like Jesus. That's what's being said here. We will walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. Notice how John uses this phrase. The one who says, that this we know that we are are in him. The one who says he abides in him. That phrase abides in Jesus is what he's referring to. That reminds us of what Jesus himself taught. And I want you to turn here. I'm going to read a section here. John 15 and I'll make some comments after or read it. But focus on what Jesus says here, especially when he speaks of abiding in, in Jesus and re- with relationship to bearing fruits and keeping his commandments. Look at John 15, 1 through 11, and then we'll draw some conclusions from this and compare it to 1 John. First, or John Gospel of John 15, 1 through 11, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, like the gardener. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. we'll stop there in in John 15. So abiding in Christ. First John talks about it, He talks about it in John 15. Either you abide in Christ or you don't. Either you are in Christ or you're not in him. Either you know him or you don't. Either you have true faith or you don't. Either you're saved or you're not. The illustration that Jesus gives is this. Jesus is the vine. His people are the branches. And they abide in the vine. They're attached to the vine. They're in the vine. And their source the branches' source of life is the vine. And they bear fruit because they're attached to the vine. Right? Because true believers are united with Christ, they're going to bear fruit. Just as a branch bears fruit because it's attached to the vine, a believer bears fruit because he's attached to Christ, the vine. On the other hand, we're told that those who do not abide in Christ, those who are not saved, do not bear good fruit. Right? They're not like Christ, and that's obvious. How could something that's not attached to the vine bear fruit? It's a branch on the ground. It's a dried up branch on the ground that is gathered up and put into the fire. See, only those branches that are attached to the vine bear fruit because apart from that, he says, you can do nothing. So those who are not in Christ will not bear fruit. How could they? They're just not attached to him. They're not growing from the vine. No branch that's dry on the ground is going to bear fruit. So if you're in Christ, he's saying, then you will bear fruit. If you're not in Christ, then you will not bear fruit because you're not attached to him. You're not in him. Those who know Christ are going to walk in his ways. That's what John is saying in 1 John. By this we know that we are in him, that we're in Christ. Whoever says says that he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. True believers are going to walk in that manner. The only way that one can demonstrate himself to be a true believer, one who's in Christ, is by bearing that fruit that only can be bared by being in Christ. The true believers will walk as Jesus walked. Now, how did Jesus walk? In obedience to the commandments, right? He never sinned. Jesus himself taught that we ought to teach and obey the commandments. Matthew 5, 17 to 19, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. I hear this. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, stick to the law and keep it. Now, some will say in response, but that's legalism. That's legalism. No, it's not. The legalism means two things. One, it can mean trying to keep the commandments to earn eternal life. I hope I've been clear enough this evening that that is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Obedience to the commands cannot and does not save us, but it is evidence that we are saved. So I'm not saying that. So it's not legalism. It's not works righteousness. The other thing that legalism means is adding man-made additions to the law of God. For example, saying you can't play cards or dance or drink a sip of alcohol or something like that. But that's not what's going on here, is it? We're talking about obeying the actual commandments of God. So obedience to the actual commandments of God is not legalism. It's Christ-likeness. That's how we're supposed to walk. See, Jesus is our Lord, right? Stop and think about what that really means. We call him Lord. The Bible calls him Lord over and over and over again. He's our master. He's our king. Jesus is in charge of us. Note that word, commandment, in this text, commandment. That's not advice. That's not a request. This is a requirement that Jesus issues to us as our Lord, who has authority over us. See, we get our marching orders from him. And as we expect from our loving God, all of his commandments are for our good, thankfully. See, those who truly know Jesus are going to walk in the way that he walked because they're following him. Does that make sense? We will walk in the way that Jesus walked because we're following him. He's our Lord. They will walk in the path that he walked. They're going to run the race set before them, the race that Jesus has also already run. Although he did it perfectly and we do not, God in the process of sanctification helps us to become more and more like Jesus as we strive to follow him. We will walk in the way that Jesus walked in obedience because God will bear that fruit in us. He will do it because we're attached to Jesus the vine. If we're truly saved, we're in Him, we will bear fruit. There's no other way that we'll bear fruit unless we're truly in Him. So, what do we do with this? What do we take away? Look at your life. Examine your life, your lifestyle. Are you a changed person? Do you desire to walk in the commandments of God? Do you desire to be like Jesus as much as you can? To be as holy as you can possibly be in your life? That you want to be rid of your sins? You want to walk in the commandments? If so, we're told here, then you can know that you know him if you keep his commandments, if you walk after Jesus. As he said in the first chapter, if you walk in the light, you know that you're walking with God since God himself is the light. If you're bearing good fruit, then you know that you abide in the vine because only those who abide in the vine can bear fruit. Apart from him, you can do nothing, Jesus said. Fruits is proof that you abide in him. But on the other hand, if you're not changed, if you're not repentant, not sorry for your sins, you don't strive and endeavor to walk in new obedience, if your life is characterized by sin, but yet claim to be a Christian, God says here in 1 John 2, that that claim to know Christ is a lie and that the truth is not in you if you have no fruit, you have no obedience as a result. I hope that's clear. I think it's pretty clear in the text. So if that is you, if you recognize there's no good fruit here, I'm not attached to the vine, then ask God to save you for real. Ask him to forgive you for your sins because of what Jesus has done on the cross. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Ask him to change your hearts. God says here that your claim to know Christ is a lie if you haven't been changed. But God can change your hearts and he can attach you to Christ and he can bear fruit in you so that you know that you really are in him, that you really have eternal life. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to change you. And God's promise for those who really turn from their sins and place their trust in Christ is this, and I'll read this in closing. Romans 10, 12 to 13. Here's his promise for you. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you for his shed blood. We thank you for salvation in him. That's by simply trusting in him and in him alone. But we thank you, Lord, too, for giving your people new hearts and guaranteeing that you would bear fruit in us because we're attached to the vine, to Jesus. That we have that fruit and so prove to be your disciples. That we have that fruit so that we can know that we can have assurance that, yes, we really do know you. It's not a phony profession, But you actually have saved us. You've done a great work in our life. You've changed us. More than getting hit by a logging truck would change us. You have changed us. Made us new people altogether. We're new creations if we're in Christ. We Thank you for that. And Lord, I pray if anybody is not in Christ right now, that you'd place them in him. And that you would bear fruit in them. And that they also would know that they have eternal life. I ask this for Christ's sake.